Second Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 13 begins this way, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us the everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Now, as we've been studying through Second Thessalonians, we have, at verse 13 of chapter 2, begun sort of a, a change, a shift in the discourse. Uh, like I said a moment ago, we are not abandoning the prophetic overtones of this epistle, but certainly those prophetic overtones begin to inform the practical way that the believer lives. And let me remind you that that's the purpose of prophecy in the Word of God. Uh, the purpose of it is to change the way that we live. It ought to affect us. It ought to move us. It ought to prompt us to a closer walk with Christ. And so with that in mind, this begins a theme that we could uh, put under the header, the greatness of the Christian life. Remember, he's been talking about the fate that awaits a, awaits a lost and dying world that chooses to persist in rejecting Christ. But then he sort of turns, almost like on a hinge, and he says in verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. He's drawing a distinction, once again, between a lost world that if they persist, or any of them would maybe be a better way to say it, that persist in their lostness, uh, that they will face the doom and the wrath and the, the heartache and the turmoil and misery and catastrophe uh, that abiding under the wrath of God will bring. But he says, you know, we give thanks that that is not the case, for you. With that in mind, there's sort of three big thoughts that summarize from verse 13 down to verse number 15 of chapter number 3. They're as follows. The first is that the believer is chosen. We're going to spend a few moments really being careful in how we divide the word of truth there and making sure we're biblical in our perspective. The second is that the believer is challenged. What we believe about the return of Christ should challenge us to live in a certain way. And then the believer is charged. There are certain things that are entrusted to us and things that in a more practical way, in a more local church way, Paul writes specifically to the church at Thessalonica regarding. So the first thought we find here is that the believer is chosen in verses 13 and 14 of uh, chapter number 2. And in that, there are three sub-points. The first, he's thanking God for some things. And the first thing he wants to thank God for is the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says in verse 13. Uh, first, he speaks about something for which we are to be thankful. He says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved, of the Lord. In other words, it's like Paul in describing all of the turmoil of the end times pauses for a moment. And he says, you know, in the midst of all of that, God is still on the throne. He is Lord. He is sovereign. His purposes are all yea and amen in Christ. We can almost hear the audible sigh of relief as the apostle returns from a contemplation of the dark days of the foretold Antichrist and from a consideration of the consummation of human unbelief in a belief most vile. He thinks once more of his dear converts away there in Thessalonica. And he thinks, you know, for all that's going to happen, what about them? Them in the great tribulation? No, no indeed. And I thank God that you won't have to experience those things. 
He has said unequivocally that they are, are not ordained to wrath, that God has uh, foreordained that the church will not experience that, will not go through that. And now, as he's been unfolding this truth, he stops and he says, you know, we ought to thank God for his eternal purposes that he has not ordained the church to go through and to experience those things. In other words, he, in the midst of all of that, found something for which to be thankful. You know, we're going into the Thanksgiving season. And uh, Thanksgiving season, in regards to our gratitude, will be what you make it. Because there will always be things to grumble about. There will always be things to be grateful about. And Paul gives a good example here that even in the midst of discussing all these deep, dark, tormenting and concerning things, he says, you know, let me just pause and say I'm thankful that that is not the lot of believers in this day of grace. That dark world of hatred and horror is not for us. He says, but ye... Brethren, In other words, that, that hinge, that changing. We talked about it Sunday morning in the preaching, but God who is rich in mercy. Well, here's another one of these moments where God butts in to a situation. He says, but ye, brethren, with one step, Paul came back from the nightmare future to the gracious present. And he came back to a chosen people, a throne of grace, and a world where salvation and sanctification of the Spirit was still possible and still available to all. So he pauses and reminds them that there is something for which to be thankful, that they are beloved of the Lord, that their position has not uh, been uh, put at jeopardy uh, by whatever prophetic truths have been disclosed in these epistles. Then he presents something about which to be thoughtful. He says, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now, there's two important things that I want to say about this, and I want you to listen carefully to both of them. Because one of them links directly to the context of our passage, and it's important. But I also want to speak to some misinterpretation that is often given in this passage. They would never believe the lie of the Antichrist because they had believed the truth of Christ. The salvation that is in focus here is almost certainly salvation or deliverance from the Antichrist and the coming delusion. Just as in the first epistle, the salvation, the deliverance that's spoken of, is in connection with the rapture. It's salvation from the wrath of God to be poured out upon this planet. The word salvation can have many different connotations in Scripture. Uh, and uh, maybe many is a little too broad of a word, but several different. Of course, there's the salvation of the believer, whereby we believe in Christ, receive Him as Savior, and are made justified in the eyes of God. That's salvation from the punishment of our sin. But here we have salvation from the power of sin, from the prophetic uh, ramifications of sin. He's saying God has from the beginning chosen you as members of the New Testament church. He has chosen you to salvation. Uh, in other words, God himself has chosen this for his people that they, those who believe in this age of grace, members of the body of Christ, shall escape the coming storm. Our sanctification by the Holy Spirit ensures that. Remember, we are wrapped up in the Holy Spirit, and He wrapped up in us. One of these days, He'll be taken out of the way. One of the ways that's going to happen is the church will be taken out of the way. Uh, we are the body through which He effectuates the will of God in this world. Our belief in Him is the truth that guarantees our escape from Him who is the lie. 
So, in other words, the salvation being spoken of here is not talking about personal soul salvation. It's not talking about spiritual salvation of the believer when they believe in Christ and are pardoned from their sin, redeemed in the eyes of God positionally. But it's talking about salvation in regards to the very context that he's been speaking of, which is the end-time horror and wrath that is to be poured out. And what he's saying is that it's been God's purposes from the beginning that the church would not go through or experience this. With that said, some people use such verses as this to bolster belief in mistaken ideas about the sovereignty of God. I want you to listen carefully to this. The sovereignty of God, they maintain, is exercised arbitrarily and independently of human powers of choice. And I'll just go ahead and say what we're talking about here. We're talking about Calvinism. The idea that God chooses some to heaven and that God chooses some to hell. Well, does the Bible really teach that? Well, certainly the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, but what does the sovereignty of God mean? Now, God is God. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He is God overall, blessed forevermore. He is sovereign Lord of the universe. He is eternal, uncreated, and self-existent. It is impossible for him ever to be mistaken, deceived, or thwarted. He has complete knowledge of all the data in the universe. He knows everything there is to know, including the names of those who, in the process of time, would accept Christ as Savior in all dispensations and under all conditions. God is God, after all. But he cannot violate his own character. He is absolutely holy. He is also the very essence and source of all love. When God created other wills in the universe beside his own will, he sovereignly limited himself within certain parameters known and controlled only by himself and determined by the character, calling, and capacity of those created beings. All of the factors implied by the existence of such wills, including the possibility that they might be used in defiance of his will, were foreknown to him. In other words, God has set up certain rules by and within which these other wills can operate. And he has respect to those wills otherwise. In the case of the human race, for instance, he would not have created people, he would have created puppets. Omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is fundamentally impossible. You remember, the Bible says that with man, there are certain things that are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, laying in juxtaposition that things that are beyond our capability or power, God has the ability to do. But that does not mean that God can do things that are fundamentally impossible. In other words, one writer said it this way, we can attribute miracles to God, but not nonsense. God cannot give a creature a will of its own and at the same time withhold free will from that creature. God cannot do two mutually exclusive things at the same time. We have a very vivid example of this in the fact that God can't sin, right? This has been one of the things people have tried to point to to say, well, God's not omnipotent because God can't sin. Well, to, to say that is irrational because it is contrary to his character. It is something that is impossibility, not because it is beyond his reach. It is an impossibility because such a condition could not exist. Were he to sin, he would no longer be, be God in the first place. So, of course, God cannot sin. And what we mean when we talk about God's omnipotence is not that he can do a bunch of foolish things that are dreamed up by delusional uh, God-denying uh, people, like can he make a rock so big that he cannot lift it. Uh, such things are foolishness. And, you know, God is not the God of nonsense. He's not the God of confusion. We can't have it both ways. Either God has created other wills in the universe, or he hasn't. If he has, he can certainly control them without violating them. For instance, a novice plays a game of chess with a chess master. 
The pieces are put on the board. Each has a measure of sovereignty over the board. Within the rules of the game, each has the power of choice and the right to decide which moves to make. The game proceeds, but after a dozen or so moves, the chess master announces that the game is over. Not once did he violate his opponent's power of choice. However, his mastery of the game and his sovereignty over the board was such that he could outmatch the other's moves. Thus, God allows us to make our choices in life, but he outmatches them. All other wills can function properly only when they cooperate with the will of God. When they are set up in opposition to God's will, they create confusion. God is quite able to take all of those factors into account and ensure that in the end, all ministers to his glory and to his eternal purpose. Nor does he ever violate other wills to do so. God will not violate the human will. By the same token, neither will he allow Satan to violate it. Satan can tempt, but he cannot compel. He can persuade, but he cannot push. He can entice, but he cannot force. He could persuade Eve, for instance, to eat of the forbidden fruit, but he couldn't push it down her throat. He couldn't make her do it. He could deceive her to do it, but he couldn't force her to do it. This is equally true of salvation. The Holy Spirit never forces us. He convicts, but he does not compel. He has thousands of ways to speak, enlighten, and strive, but he never makes the decision for us. In the end, the decision is ours. We can say, I will or I won't to the gospel call. He can and does quicken, but can be and sometimes is quenched. We have clear scriptural example of that in the book of Acts. Whenever uh, Stephen, in preaching to the Sanhedrin, he said, you know, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of hearts as your fathers did, so do ye. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. The Calvinists would say you can't resist the Holy Ghost. I don't know what they're going to do when they get to heaven uh, and meet Stephen. He's going to have a word with them, I would imagine. God respects the decisions we make. He does not send people to hell. They send themselves. A person says, I will not accept Christ. God finally says, your will be done. Live forever without him. God in his omniscience has anticipated all of this. Uh, here's something that may clarify. We dwell in three tenses of time, but God dwells in the eternal present. We have the past, the present, the future. But remember, in Scripture, he describes himself as I am, the ever-present, eternally present God. Thus, the moment that he chose me was the same moment that I chose Christ. He didn't choose Christ for me. I chose Christ. But past, present, and future are human phenomena. God transcends time. He knows the end from the beginning. He's able to choose, elect, predestinate, because the future is all foreknown to him. God does not preordain certain people to be saved and certain people to be lost. So again, let me say that's not the context of the verse that we're looking at. But it's always worth noting that. It would be completely uh, inconsistent with the nature and character of God to say, I'm going to give you free will, but your free will doesn't matter. I'm going to let you choose, but I'm not really letting you choose. God's not bluffing anybody. God's not toying with anybody. He truly lets us choose whether to receive him or not. But our choices don't surprise him, and they don't derail his plan for humanity. So he speaks about the sovereignty of God. Second, he speaks about the salvation of God. He says, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The believer is chosen by God not only to escape the wrath to come, but to be set apart for himself. Sanctification. Separation and sanctification are two sides of the same coin. Separation has to do with what we are moving away from, and sanctification has to do with what we are moving unto. If you have one without the other, neither of them hold any power in your life. In other words, you don't just separate from sin, you separate to the Lord. 
If you separate from sin without separating to the Lord, it won't be long. You'll be back in the same sin that you were seeking to separate from. Sanctification is accomplished by the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. The necessary prerequisite for that is belief of the truth. This is not only a matter of the mind and heart. It ultimately is a matter of the will. You remember Jesus said to unbelievers in his day, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. And salvation fundamentally is a matter of the will. The world wants to tell you that they don't believe because they can't believe, but that's not true. People with far less uh, cleverness, far less education, far less intelligence have believed on the Lord. Uh, and certainly people even, for many of those folks that would posit that with more education, have believed on the Lord and been saved. It's not that they can't. It's at the end of the day, as he said to the leopard, uh, leopard, leper, he might have talked to leopards too, I don't know, but he spoke to a leper and he said, uh, wilt thou be made whole? It's a matter of the will. He said to another, what wilt ye that I should do unto you? It's a matter of submitting our will unto his. So he talks about the salvation of God, and then he talks about the splendor of God. He says, whereunto he called you by our gospel. What did he call us to? Did he call us to wrath? No, the context is already made clear, and never does the Bible move outside of its own context that he has not foreordained us to wrath, he's not predestinated us to wrath, but what has he called us unto? To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far from being destined to the doom and gloom of the great tribulation and the dark shadow of the Antichrist, the church is destined for glory. We will come back with him when he comes in power and great glory to overthrow his foes. And I normally don't share quotes from hymns, but I've got a couple of them tonight because they were just so good. As the old hymn, The Crowning Day, says, The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they. The saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array. The beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye, for the crowning day is coming by and by. Remember, the whole theme of this is we're not appointed to wrath. We're not ordained to wrath, but rather to salvation through Jesus Christ. And he's continuing that same vein of thought. And the salvation he speaks of is to be understood in that context. So the believer is chosen. The second thing that he points out to us is that the believer is challenged. And he's challenged to do three things. First, he's challenged to trust the Lord. Second, he's challenged to travail. That's part of our experience in this life. We're going to experience suffering. Yea, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And third, he is called to triumph. So what does it say in verse number 15? Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistles. In other words, Paul gets down to the practical challenge of the believers and all of his epistles combine doctrine and behavior. These are believers that are experiencing fierce persecution and he challenges them in the midst of all that to not give up on the truth, but rather to stand fast. It's been well said before that whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should pause and see what it's there for because the, the therefores are always there for something. Uh, in other words, it draws our attention directly to the preceding context. And what a terrific context it is. We're to escape all of those end-time horrors that are soon to burst upon the world. We have been chosen to share instead in the end-times glories of Christ. Therefore, we must stand fast and hold fast. The fact that we are going to escape the climactic horrors of the consummation of the age, the fact that God has decided for us that we shall share the splendors of His Son and be shown to the world as partakers of His glory, makes certain demands upon us. We must live even now as those who are members of the royal family of heaven. 
That is our responsibility. You know, this reminds us of Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul, the crippled Mephibosheth. Uh, Whenever David spoke to him, he said, Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And Mephibosheth was a man typical of the human race. He was lame on both of his feet without any standing, not to say without any possibility of walking. But David knew all of that when he sent messengers of his grace to find him in distant Lodabar. All that he asked of Mephibosheth was that he come and hide his poor lame feet under the king's own table and that he accept the rank and dignity of one who henceforth was to be counted as one of the king's sons. That, however, imposed on Mephibosheth a responsibility as well as a right. He must henceforth conduct himself not as a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, but as a member of the family of David. It would be most improper for Mephibosheth to have lounged around the royal palace looking like a beggar or to frequent haunts in Jerusalem where he would bring dishonor on that high table that he now graced. So we'll say more about the text of verse 15 here in a moment. But the emphasis here is that we have a responsibility in light of what we know and in light of what we are appointed to, to respond to that by living up to the standard that the word of God has set forth. You know, but Mephibosheth did not have what it took to live this new life in David's palace. So David bestowed upon him, as a further act of his grace, all that he needed henceforth to appear before David and all other men as a member of David's family. He gave him lands and servants and title, all the resources that he would need. And that introduces our resources in verses 16 and 17. God knows that even when we accept this royal invitation and come in all of our ruin and rags to Jesus, even when by his grace, He puts us in his own family and sits us at his own table. We do not have in and of ourselves the spiritual resources necessary to live the Christian life. So he gives us what we need. So he has exhorted them to stand fast. How are they going to do that? Well, in verse 16, he speaks about these resources that enable us in these days to live for the Lord. Notice first off whence they come. He says, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In other words, how are they going to do it? Well, they'll do this by the grace and help of God. Verse 15 says we are to stand fast. And the reason for that is because God has now given us a standing before him and in him. The word stand fast is in the present continuous tense. It's a position that we are to always maintain. The Thessalonians had moved away doctrinally from the firm foundation of truth on which Paul had placed their feet. And now he's exhorting them to return to that place of doctrinal integrity and to cling there, to hold there. What is it that he exhorts them to? Well, he says the traditions which ye have been taught. What was that? Well, the traditions they had been taught was the apostolic truth in which Paul had grounded them. You know, the word traditions has been much abused because it has come to mean human teachings and religious practices that often contain a great deal of error interwoven with truth. But the word used here is the word paradosis, meaning something that has been delivered from one person to another. It's, of course, a fact that the New Testament truth was transmitted orally at first before it was pinned down. It was handed on thus by the Lord Jesus to his disciples and chosen apostles. It's not to be compared with the traditions handed on by the Jews and that later comprised the Talmud, of which the Jews were so zealous and about which the Lord roundly rebuked them. Nor is it to be compared with the traditions of which the Roman church is the custodian and that she treats as being of equal weight with the scriptures, even though they frequently contradict the truth of the word of God. 
Rather, the Holy Spirit kept the oral traditions, the teachings of the early church pure. He kept their memory alive and supernaturally revealed deeper aspects of the truth as time passed. The Lord foretold this entire process when he spoke about the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of John before his crucifixion. You remember in John 14, 26, he said this, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. That covers the Gospels, the four Gospels, the things that Jesus has said. In John 15, 26 and 27, he said, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. This covers the book of Acts, that transitional period in which they were bearing witness to the power of the resurrection. In John 16, 12, he taught further. He said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. That covers the New Testament epistles, the further truth that the Holy Spirit would disclose. And then, immediately after that, in verse 14, he says, And he will show you things to come, he shall glorify me. That covers the book of Revelation. So, in other words, all of New Testament truth was committed to the custodianship of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Ghost of God moved upon men. It's breathed of God, inspired of God. The Holy Spirit supernaturally protected these teachings from any admixture of error. All of them were written down before the last of the apostles died, and they contain all that is needed for faith and practice. You better be very leery of anyone that claims that they have. And I'm not just going to say leery. You might as well dismiss out of hand anybody that claims that they have an extra scriptural truth. I don't mean God, you know, made an application of a passage to me. I don't mean God used this in my life. But somebody that comes along and says, I have something from God that's not in your Bible. Go ahead and dismiss them out of hand. They're trying to sell you something or maybe worse. The apostle told the Thessalonians that they were to hold these traditions. The word kriteo is the word hold. It means to be strong, powerful, to be master of. They were to grasp the truth firmly. Paul reminds them that they had been taught the truth by word, that is, by his teaching before he left town, and by epistle, that is, by the first epistle that he wrote to them. Eventually, of course, by all of the inspired New Testament scripture. The resources are thus available to us to stand fast and firmly, to grasp the truth, to live the life itself, and they all come from the Lord Jesus Christ and from our Father. Paul adds to the end of this, who loves us. The present tense here does not point to one moment of time or to one particular occasion. God loves us in the present tense. All moments and occasions are ever before us, uh, just as all moments and occasions of our choice are ever before us. And he loves us in all of them. The tense is used rather to remind us that God's love is timeless. So we, we see whence they come from. Then notice what they convey. In concluding this particular challenge, Paul reminds us not only whence these resources come, and they are infinite, but also what these resources convey. The benefits of these resources can be cataloged basically in two categories. The first is uh, things conveyed by divine love. He said, hath given unto us, or given us, everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. In other words, comfort is the first of these. Everlasting consolation. The comfort that the Lord Jesus and the Father give to us is eternal. It's quite different from the comfort that this world affords. Uh, Next, he mentions good hope through grace. 
we have indeed what Paul calls here a good hope. Hope may be defined as a well-grounded expectation. Remember the context, not to substitute tribulation, but to escape it. In other words, hope is not wishful thinking, but a firmly held and solidly based prospect. The blessed hope, the rapture, dominates the entire future skyline of the child of God. Jesus is coming again and before the Antichrist comes. God's grace is our guarantee. Our prospect is grace, not wrath, escape, not tribulation. The second is divine life, things contained in divine life. He says, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The Lord Jesus and the Father himself, the God of all love and consolation, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work, writes Paul. The fires of persecution were still burning there at Thessalonica. Meanwhile, let them draw on all the resources of the Godhead. God himself would establish them. The word is sterizo. It means to set, fa- set fast or to fix firmly. The believer then is challenged and called to trust God, to continue serving him, sharing his truth, and sharing in his work. God is still on the throne, in other words. So we find the close of chapter number two. Let's get in chapter number three. We'll read just five verses. Verse number one, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do things, the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the patient waiting for of Christ. So the first thing the believers challenge to is to trust. The second is travail. And we see an example of this in what Paul says. First, we find an exhortation. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. You know, we never arrive at the place in our Christian life and ministry where we no longer need people to pray for us. The greatest of all the apostles solicited prayer from his converts. Paul not only felt his need for prayer warriors to help pin down the enemy and soften hearts and open doors, but he also wanted to give his converts an opportunity to share with us in his ministry. Prayer has the ability to place us in a village in Africa or in a hut on the Amazon. It can put us in a peasant's cottage or in a royal palace. It can do its work in the heart of a sinner at the close of a service. It can change the course of empires. It can put to rout spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And it can bind evil spirits and set their captives free. Prayer links us with the throne of the universe. It connects us with the mind, heart, and will of God. Prayer is one of the forces of the universe, as real as the forces of gravity, electricity, and magnetism. God always takes into account the factor of prayer when he is resolving the total equation of the universe. Paul said, pray for us, and no wonder he did. Prayer is a powerful thing. So we see an exhortation here, and then he follows with an explanation. What's he asking them to pray about? Well, there's basically two things. First, he wants them to pray for the proclamation of the message, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. The apostle wanted all hindrances to the gospel swept aside, that it might make rapid progress in the world. The enemy is very clever at hindering, as Paul reminded his Thessalonian friends in his first epistle. Paul was often hindered. He was hindered by the suspicion with which he was regarded in Jerusalem by even Jewish Christians. He was hindered by the active malice of the Jews of the Diaspora. He was hindered by imprisonment, by shipwrecks, by opposition of apostates such as Elimus, the sorcerer, and the demons that possessed the soul of the slave girl at Philippi. He was hindered at times by his own discouragement. He told the Corinthians later that he knew what it was to be crippled on all sides, to be surrounded, to be troubled on all sides, to be puzzled and persecuted. 
Prayer, he knew, was the only power that could clear away all the obstacles. And he gives us an example saying when we make an effort in reaching lost sinners, we should pray that the proclamation of the message goes unhindered. Secondly, he's praying for the protection of the messenger. He says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. You know, the Thessalonians had experienced that. They knew what happened when the enemies of the gospel tried to hinder its progress by stirring up attacks against those who proclaimed it. And people working in lands where Islam, Hinduism, and other false religions and creeds control the very government and the courts know what it's like to face the opposition of unreasonable and wicked men, men who are utterly devoid of saving faith. By the way, let me interject, we're learning that more and more in our country. And that's not a political statement, that's just an observation. Uh, It's been true for a long time, and it's becoming more potent and salient day by day that we're realizing what it is to see institutional opposition to the Word of God. Not just talking about endemic bias due to lost men living in the world, but I'm talking about structured uh, opposition to the truth of the Word of God. But Paul knows how to deal with that. You know, Satan is a skilled player on life's chessboard. He knows how to move his men to check the advance of the gospel, but he's no match for the Holy Spirit. Prayer can annul even his formidable advantages. And let me just remind you that it's in times of great opposition that the gospel often makes serious forward thrusts, progress for the grace of God and the glory of God. So he's asking them to pray and to uh, experience the tribulation that they're experiencing in a holy way. The third thing is to triumph. Yes, indeed, we are on the winning side. And Paul gives us two reasons that we can be assured of victory. He he mentions the Lord's reliability as the first. In other words, the Lord's character of faithfulness. And second, he mentions the Lord's return. In considering the Lord's reliability, Paul mentions first the Lord and his purposes. And they are twofold. Uh, Notice what he says in verse number three. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. In other words, God intends to ground his own and to guard his own. To fix them in a place, to keep them from wavering but also to protect them. Paul looks away from the dangers that he himself had so often faced and comes back to consider the dangers that the Thessalonians were facing. The Lord would give them both stability and protection, he encourages them. The Lord is faithful, he reminds them. God does not exempt his people from the natural disasters and ills of life. He does not promise immunity from dislike, discrimination, detention, or even death. But what he does promise is that he will temper the wind to the shorn lamb. He will not allow Satan to go beyond a certain line that he himself draws with an unerring hand. Moreover, he promises to make a way of escape in times of temptation, and that often uh, is the result of his own sufficient grace. Uh, let me just say, and I love Paul's example here, uh, I, I, I hear a lot of Christians in these days looking around and saying, boy, look how wicked everything is. Look how fierce the enemy is. Look how uh, vicious uh, the hatred of Christianity is. Look at, look at how wicked the world is. I like what Paul says. He says, yeah, that's true, but the Lord is faithful. In the midst of all of that, it doesn't change the faithfulness of God. So in looking at the Lord's reliability, he mentions the Lord and his purposes, what he intends to do for his people. And then second, he mentions the Lord and his people. Uh, notice what he says. We have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. Paul's confidence was not misplaced. It was in the Lord. That's where Job's confidence was. You know, disaster after disaster had rolled over him in a series of tidal waves. They were utterly senseless so far as he could see. His friends had each come to sit and to stare. Each of them had said his first piece, more or less accusing Job of secret sin. 
Uh, Job had answered them argument for argument. His friend Zophar had been particularly brutal. He said to Job, or he, uh, Job said back to him, said, wisdom will die with you, speaking sarcastically. And then reaffirming his faith, this is what Job cried. He said, though he slay me, speaking of the Lord, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job's confidence was in the Lord. Moses' confidence was in the Lord. The children of Israel had marched out of Egypt only to find themselves trapped. The waters of the Red Sea rolled before them, barring their way. The Egyptian army was behind them, marching to avenge the devastation of their land and the death of their firstborn sons. The Israelites were in a panic. The forward look was hopeless. The backward look was terrifying. They quite forgot, though, the upward look. Moses then spoke and said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He had hardly finished speaking when the ominous Shekinah glory of God moved from before them to stand between them and the foe. It's no vain thing to have confidence in the Lord. Paul, as much as he loved the Thessalonian believers, he did not place his trust and confidence in them. He had confidence in the Lord. And he appealed to God regarding them. He said, you both do and will do the things that we command you. This was not because of his apostolic authority. He never felt the need to threaten uh, with them concerning that as he did with others. But because he had confidence in the Lord regarding them. After all, they were the Lord's people and not his people. So we see because of the Lord's reliability. And then secondly, because the Lord's return. Look what it says in verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. They could rest their hearts from fretting, knowing that upon all the matters of their life, the love of God reigned diligently. No matter what befell them, it must first be processed through God's infinite and merciful love. Our hearts grow fearful, our hearts grow weary, uh, our hearts grow anxious. What do we do with that? We take that heart and direct it right into the love of God. Remind ourselves that nothing will touch us but what has had to pass through God's love first. But not only into the love of God, but into the patient waiting for Christ. You know, they were facing fierce persecution, but one day all that would be passed. Until then, they were to let patience have her perfect work, as James had said. Their tribulations were not pleasant, but Paul said in Romans 5.3 that we can glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. One day they would be delivered from this hostile and Christ-hating world, but for now they were to direct their hearts into patience and wait for Christ's return. I'd remind you, patience is not the act of waiting. Very often, uh, we have no choice in the matter of waiting, at least in my case, because I'm an impatient person. If I don't have to wait, I'll find a way not to wait. Sometimes God makes me lie down beside, you know, still, still waters, and sometimes he makes me be patient. And the way I exhibit patience, and the way you exhibit patience, is not in the act of waiting, but in the attitude of waiting. We have to wait sometimes. But are we willing to trust God in the midst of that waiting? Stay diligent serving Him and keep a joyous spirit. So we see in verses uh, 3 through 5 the triumph. And then in verse number 6 onward, we find sort of the closing thought here. The believer is charged. And Paul turns his attention to setting in order a matter that had arisen in the church at Thessalonica. Let's read verses 6 down through verse 15. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which you received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. 
For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he mentions basically two things here. In verses 6 to 11, he mentions the need for discipline in the church. We see first Paul's exhortation in verse number 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Here is a clear call for the exercise of church discipline. The word withdraw is the word stello, the word used for the furling of a sail. It suggests shrinking back from someone. In other words, we're not to associate with a believer whose life is disorderly. The idea is that we keep aloof from him. It's an effective way of letting him know that his conduct is not acceptable. The word for disorderly is the word ataktos, which means not keeping in rank. They're like soldiers who are out of step, they're out of place, out of order. The following verses detail what was so undisciplined about these disorderly believers. But notice the first step here, if a person is living in disobedience, and it's really taken upon by the congregation themselves, and that is to not allow them to maintain that prior relationship in the way that it had existed before. I'm going to tell you something. I've received criticism for this myself in 11 years of pastoring when people have left and left in disobedience, not because they're leaving Wall Ridge, not because there's no other church than ours, but they live, uh, they leave in disobedience, bad spirit, try to hurt the ministry. It's obvious they're leaving in rebellion. Uh, and very often I'm not unkind to them. I, I don't, if they called me, I'd answer my phone. But I'm not going to chase them. I'm not going to pursue after them. And I'm not going to pretend as though that relationship is what it once was. Now, I'm not doing that out of pettiness, and you shouldn't do it out of pettiness either. But there is a principle here. It should not be that people should be able to abuse the church of the living God and go on acting as though nothing has changed. It is a biblical principle that that relationship should be affected in some way. And that often is the first most gentle step to dealing with it. It doesn't mean being unkind. It doesn't mean not being there for them when they need it. But it does mean allowing that relationship to not maintain the fervency that it once had. There's a biblical example for this. Paul gives his own example concerning what the issue was. Before actually naming the specifics of the case, Paul leads up to it by reminding the Thessalonians of how he and his colleagues had behaved while in their city. He reminds them first off of his integrity. He says, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. The missionary party under Paul's governance had been an example of self-discipline. They knew how to keep rank among themselves. There had been no vying for position, no insubordination, no disorderly conduct. Moreover, they had exercised the greatest propriety in their dealings with their contacts and their converts. They could say, follow us, and you won't go wrong, not because they were inerrant, not because they were infallible, but because they left a good testimony. He also reminds them of his industry while he was there. He says, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. This was Paul's settled policy, it seems, on the mission field. Nobody would ever be able to say of him that he was in it for the money. On the contrary, he made tents to pay not only his own expenses, but also those of others, of the missionary party, who for one reason or another were unable to support themselves. Even as he worked at his tent making, he was busy about his soul winning and Bible teaching. 
Then night after night, long hours were devoted to evangelism, teaching, and shepherding. That's how it was at Corinth. That's how it had been at Thessalonica. And that's how it had been almost everywhere he was. No wonder he could say, follow me. He had given them an example of good work ethic. He then reminds them of his intention. He says, not because we have no power or have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. Paul was not motivated by pride, saying, I wouldn't take your money. I'm, I'm too good for that. But rather by purpose. He could well have accepted gifts from his converts as an appropriate means of supplying his needs. Nothing about that was improper. After all, as Paul later wrote to his colleague Timothy, the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. He told the Corinthians the same thing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong in receiving money for laboring in the harvest field. Paul, however, bent over backward to put to rest the lie that he made merchandise of his converts and that it paid him to be a preacher. It was his avowed intention to set an example of hard work. Let me make this passing statement. As a full-time pastor, as someone that labors in the field, that labors in the work, there is a great many today, and it's something that has to you have to consistently guard yourself against in making sure you're maintaining a... a, a, a uh, diligent and disciplined work ethic. Because it's easy to just shift into neutral and coast. Uh, a pastor ought to view it as though the work he's laboring in and doing in ministry, he ought to be putting in as many hours as he would on a secular job. And by the way, it shouldn't just be, and I've always felt this way, I've never considered the things that I do in preparation to preach to you Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, I've never considered that something that I get paid for. If I was going to any church and they didn't have anyone to preach and they asked me to do it, I'd do that same as if they need a song leader, I'd leave singing. If they needed somebody to change the garbage, I'd change the garbage. But rather, the office work of pastoring, the vision casting of pastoring, the organization of pastoring, uh, the maintenance of the ministry, those are the things that I've always considered myself uh, to be paid for. And Paul evidently had that same perspective. He's not, uh, you know, decrying the idea of a pastor or preacher or evangelist being compensated for their time. But he's saying we should not make merchandise of the people of God, nor should we traffic in laziness. We shouldn't tolerate it. We shouldn't allow it. Uh, whether a person's in ministry or not, they ought to be a hard worker. And Paul left that example. He Lastly, he reminds him of his intimation. He says, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's the Christian work ethic. There was a social security system under the Mosaic Law, but it too was based on work. Farmers, when reaping their harvest, were obliged to leave the corners of their field unreaped, along with the gleanings, or what the scythe left behind at the first sweep through the field. This was for the poor. The government did not put its hand into the pocket of a hard-working citizen to put money in the hand of a lazy person who had no taste for work. Work was made available. He could follow the reapers and glean what was left. There was no need for anyone to starve. Likewise, in the New Testament, provision was made for the genuine widow. But beyond that, social welfare was up to the family. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, Paul said, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So here he reminds his Thessalonian converts that when he was with them, he had commanded his newfound friends in Christ to work as well. So we see his example. Then notice his exclamation. He sort of uh, reveals what the issue at hand was. He says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Remember that the word disorderly was used to describe the furling of a sail. And what a graphic picture of the lazy man, folding his arms and settling back to do nothing to contribute to the well-being of the community, content to coast along on the efforts of others. Paul was clearly indignant 
in the way that he spoke. Love, compassion, and a helping hand should indeed be extended to the poor, the disabled, the aged, and the infirm, but not to the able-bodied person who feels that society owes him a living. The word for busybodies is, I'm not even going to try it, it's a Greek word, look it up, which means literally to be busy about useless matters. It means to bustle about. It carries the idea of being a meddler in matters that are somebody else's concern. Evidently, these people were minding everybody's business but their own. So he speaks about the need for discipline. Then notice the nature of discipline that he's talking about. First, Paul gives a word of command. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. The perfect example of this is the Lord Jesus himself. He was not born in a palace but in a barn, surrounded by the implements of toil. His mother, though of royal pedigree, was not a princess, but a peasant. Joseph, Mary's husband, though equally of royal blood, was not a lord, but a laborer. For many years, Jesus himself toiled at a carpenter's bench. When he came, became a, uh, came into public ministry, he did not have a fancy vehicle in which to ride. He walked. If the creator of the universe, who could have come in a chariot of fire and commanded twelve legions of angels to smooth his path, having been born in the lap of luxury and been carried through life on flowery beds of ease, if he chose rather to work and toil, why should we think we ought not to work and work hard? With true genius, Paul points to the perfect example. The word for quietness means be silent. It calls for tranquility, the kind of quiet calm that arises from within and that causes no disturbance to others. It calls for the very opposite spirit than that which motivates the man who is forever prying into the private affairs of other people. Work and eat your own bread, in other words, is what Paul says. And let me remind you of something Paul exhorted. He's giving pastoral advice to Timothy. And I want to be very careful and, and clear in, in why I'm bringing this up and drawing an application. He, he mentioned about why that the church wasn't to take a widow under a certain age. And what he meant by that was not that unmarried women or widows couldn't attend church that were under a certain age. It's not what he was saying. But he was saying you're not to take that person and make them a ward of the church. Because if you do, because they are not working, he said they will grow listless, they will grow into being busybodies, and they will go about getting in everyone else's business instead of minding their own business. Now you say, preacher, that's a great condemnation of unmarried women. No, it's a great condemnation of idleness. That's the point. Uh, the same thing could be said of anybody that becomes a ward of the church. And I found this. There's a lot of trouble you won't have the energy to get into if you're putting in eight hours of work a day. There's a lot in a church. When people are idle, it creates disorderliness. And very often, even in churches that are sort of... Um, uh, temples to self-gratification. They're all about just social clubs and, and, and just ministering to the body, to the body, to the body, and never doing anything externally. They often have deep and abiding problems because it all becomes about whose special interests should be protected and considered the most. Work will keep us from a lot of harm and a lot of turmoil in our life. And you were taught growing up that idle hands are the devil's plaything. And I think there is a biblical truth there as well. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, what would fix us this more than anything if those people would go out and get a job and work? And then they wouldn't have time for a lot of that nonsense. Isn't it interesting that all the riots that happen in our country where people burn down and do billions of dollars worth of damage, that all of them either happen, that they all happen late at night when decent people would be in bed because they've got to get up for work the next morning. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Well, very often it's idleness that we have built endemic into our society and is creating an environment for chaos. Well, Paul has an answer for that. Let them eat their own bread in quietness. So he gives a word of command. Then he gives a word of caution. He says, but ye, brethren, 
Be not weary in well-doing. And I think this is important. We should never get weary of doing good. This word of caution, perhaps, was necessary to prevent an overreaction on the part of the diligent members of the Christian community. Having been ripped off once or twice, it would be easy to decide to abandon social work entirely. There are needy and deserving cases. There are times, too, when we give help, even when we know we're being played for a sucker. There might be uh, have, have been possi- a possible reaction, too, against even necessary Christian activity, such as evangelism, teaching, and pastoring. Many people have become drained and discouraged and abandoned all active involvement in the Lord's work, and Paul warns against that. Often such defeat and discouragement arises from working for the Lord instead of allowing Him by His indwelling Spirit to work in us and through us. The Lord Lord is an example of this. As man, He drew on the illimitable uh, resources of His Father. That's why He was never weary in well-doing. Weary with His journey, yes. But weary in well-doing, never. So now we draw on the inexhaustible resources of our Lord. So it is to be He who does the work. And He has what it takes. So in other words, he says, don't get so discouraged uh, with the listlessness of some in society, with the abuse that they want uh, to exercise upon well-meaning people of God, that you shut your, your heart to all people. And there is a great danger of doing that as well. Then we see discipline advocated. He uh, mentions a couple things here. One, he mentions excommunication. Paul puts some teeth into the commandment. He says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. To be added to the body of Christ and then to be excommunicated by the local body of the church leaves one in a very vulnerable position. Paul acknowledged that fact when he urged the Corinthians to receive back into the fellowship an excommunicated brother. He was afraid, quote, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The immediate reason for excommunication was to disassociate the church from any appearance of condoning and encouraging disorderly behavior. The hope was that the brother, thus isolated from the Christian community, would see his behavior in its proper light and would be ashamed of himself. The goal was to bring him to his senses, to make him realize that his behavior was not acceptable. Nowadays, if a local church scripturally disciplines a person for disorderly or immoral conduct or for doctrinal deviation, the offender simply runs down the street to join another church. Thus, the whole purpose of church discipline is circumvented. This was not so easily done in the early church. No little part of the weakness of the local church today lies in its unwillingness to discipline its members and its willingness to receive those who are under the scriptural discipline of another church. You want my my hot take on that? There's two reasons that there's not a lot of church discipline that takes place. One, for the very reason that we mentioned. Most of the time, when somebody finds out they're about to be under church discipline, they just take off, tear off, leave in the first place. The second reason is we are so inundated with so many church buildings. I'm not going to say churches, but church buildings here in the deep south and in in the buckle of the Bible belt, that most of the time, troublemakers, if a pastor will pastor with a firm hand, lovingly, diligently, if he will pastor the church instead of the church pastoring him, typically there's so much fodder for them to run to that when they see they're not going to get their way at your church, they'll leave on their own anyway. And I've experienced this many times throughout the year. Uh, I've seen there's been times when somebody knew that they were about to uh, have a meeting, that that things were about to come to a head, and they just tucked tail and ran. And then there's a great many that you could tell from the moment they came into the door, they were seeking to have the preeminence, they wanted to stir up trouble. And if you generally just were kind to them but gave them no entrance to do that, typically within a few weeks or a month they'd move on to somewhere else that was easier 
in the first place. So part of the reason you don't see as much church discipline, it's still biblical, uh, but very often uh, there is no uh, way meaningfully uh, to execute in a person's life. Notice then what the expectation is. He says this, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The aim in even so severe a discipline as excommunication is the restoration of the offender. He's to be admonished as a brother because that's what he is. So often believers treat the excommunicated brother to hard looks and harsh words. They gossip about him, treat him with disdain when they should entreat him with compassion. Even if the man were an enemy, which he's not, the Lord tells us to love and pray for our enemies. Remember the distinction. We shouldn't allow that relationship to go on the way that it existed when they were living in obedience to the Lord. How could you, if you're living in obedience, have the same relationship with someone that once was living in obedience to the Lord when they are now living in disobedience to the Lord? How would that even be possible? Uh, Of course, it's not possible. But there is another ditch on the other side of the road, and that's treating people in an unkind way, in a cold way, in a cruel way. Never should any Christian be able to be rightfully accused of doing that. We ought to always still treat them with love and compassion and be there if they need us, but simply not chase them down and try to hog time and drag them back in. If you get them back in that way, they're going to get out the same way that they got out the first time. Instead, it's best to let God deal with them and you continue to show compassion and kindness to them as God affords opportunity. There's three more verses left. I think we can cover that. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 16. These are Paul's concluding statements. Now, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Here, Paul delivers three closing remarks. First, we have Paul's last prayer in verse number 16. Their fellow countrymen and the Jews treated them as enemies. Paul prayed that they might know peace. Within the fellowship were those who were causing problems in both belief and behavior. Paul prayed that no matter what the situation might be, whether in the church or in the world, the peace of God would reign undisturbed in their hearts. This peace garrisoned in the heart of Peter when he calmly went to sleep on what he expected to be his last night on earth in Acts chapter 12. He'd come a long way since that other night some few years before when he had so feverishly denied his Lord out of fear. This peace reigned in the heart of Paul when he stood on the deck of a stricken ship in the grip of a howling gale and a tempestuous sea and calmly announced that all would be well. He now prays that the Thessalonian believers would have this peace in the midst of their trial. What a precious verse. The Lord of peace himself give you peace. There's no peace like you get from the Lord of peace. Then we see Paul's last precaution. Verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Paul would always do this. He'd write the signature with his own hand, and he drew attention to his signature. The same formula is used in 1 Corinthians 16.21, Colossians 4.18, and in the little book of Philemon, verse 19. A similar precaution is found in his letter to the Galatians. In fact, he tells them he's written the entirety of the book of Galatians. It was particularly important that he drew special attention to his personal signature here in 2 Thessalonians because a fraudulent epistle, supposedly bearing his name, had already deceived the church in Thessalonica. We see that in chapter 2 and verse 2. And then finally we have Paul's last pronouncement. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He ends where he begins, with grace. Grace saves us. Grace sanctifies us. Grace strengthens us. Grace secures us. It's all great from the beginning to the very end. That's how Paul ends these two magnificent epistles dealing with the second coming of Christ.